hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. We can have the future we want, but we have to work for it. You're listening to Soonish. I'm Wade Rausch. ALS, which is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, is the third most common neurodegenerative disease, right after Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. But out of those three, ALS is arguably the most devastating, because it moves so fast. Patients lose so many of their motor neurons that they usually die of respiratory failure within two to four years. ALS strikes about 7,000 people every year in the U.S., And the typical ALS patient is in their 50s or 60s when symptoms set in. So you could argue that they've had relatively full lives. But that wasn't the case with J.C. Hermstad. The native of Storm Lake, Iowa, loved horses and worked in marketing for a company that sold livestock feed. J.C. and her parents had slowly rebuilt their lives after losing J.C.'s identical twin sister, Alex, to an aggressive form of ALS back in 2011 when Alex and JC were both 17 years old. And then in 2019, when JC was just 25, she too was diagnosed with the disease. I can no longer walk and everything that I do is pretty much assisted. 25-year-old JC has the same rare genetic form of ALS, not only as Eitan, but also her identical twin sister, Alex, who died eight years ago from the illness. Both Alex and JC developed ALS because of a rare mutation in their DNA that must have occurred at the moment of the twins' conception. Their particular mutation is so rare that it's only been observed in about 20 people ever across the entire planet. Considering that both sisters carried this mutation, it's unclear why it took so much longer for the symptoms of ALS to show up in JC. But in the eight years that passed between Alex's death and JC's diagnosis, something pretty amazing happened. Scientists studying JC's mutation realized they might have the technology to reverse it. And advances like that are what today's episode is about. In the past, the idea of developing a new drug to treat just one person would have been completely impractical. But we're now entering an era when it is possible to make drugs to treat people with extremely rare mutations. And at the same time, we're also starting to figure out how to pay for the development of those drugs and how to get them through the regulatory approval process fast enough that they can actually help patients. We've spent decades trying to understand human biology and human disease at the level of our genes and proteins. And this latest progress is a sign that we're heading toward a future where a rare genetic mutation doesn't have to be a death sentence. And that's a big deal. Because as it turns out, Rare mutations aren't all that rare. The number of people with any specific mutation, like Alex and JC's, might be just two or 20. But worldwide, as many as 350 million people have rare genetic conditions. Creating a drug to treat one of those conditions is, at the moment, still extremely expensive. And so the big question right now is how to make these treatments more accessible. JC Hermstad was one of the pioneers. She got several infusions of an experimental drug called an antisense oligonucleotide, or ASO. It was custom-designed to block the effects of her specific mutation. 
J.C. did regain some strength and motor control, which was a sign that the drug was working against her ALS. Sadly, her disease was already too far along for the drug to catch up, and J.C. died in May of 2020. KTIV's Stella Daskalakis was in Storm Lake, Iowa today, where J.C. Hermstead was laid to rest. J.C. Hermstead was a friend to many people. She will be remembered for her devotion to faith, her love for her family and her horse Bud, and especially for her smile and quick wit. She never gave up. J.C. Hermstead has provided the momentum for the rest of us who go forward on the mission that she fought so hard on. She did a lot of good things for the ALS community. And it's, we need to keep fighting for her. Already, at least eight more patients are being treated with the same antisense drug, which was named in J.C.'s honor. It's called J.C. Fusen. When you test a new drug on just one person, like J.C., it's called an N-of-one trial, because there's only one person in the study. On today's show, we'll hear from a scientist who's trying to streamline the process of creating, testing, and approving N-of-one drugs. At the same time, he's trying to make sure that patients and their families don't have to bear the expense on their own. His name is Stanley Crook. He's the former CEO of a pharmaceutical company called Ionis, that made the very first antisense oligonucleotide drugs back in the 1990s. And now he's taken on a second or third career as the head of a nonprofit called the N. Lorem Foundation. I'll let Crook describe it. N. Lorem Foundation is a charitable foundation that I initiated in January of 2020. And its mission is to take advantage of the technology that we created at Ionis to bring experimental ASO treatments to patients with ultra-rare diseases and to do that for free for life. Uh, and I always sort of feel like I have to repeat for free for life because it was literally impossible until just now. And it's pretty exciting that it is actually possible. Today we'll talk about how it became possible and what that means for people with rare genetic conditions. Folks in the healthcare industry have been talking for a long time about precision medicine. That's the idea that each of us might eventually get treatments or prescriptions tailored to our specific genetic makeup. But N of 1 drugs are more than just precise. In a way, they're hyper-personalized. And the concept of hyper-personalized medicine was actually the subject of a different podcast episode I made last year, when I had a gig as the host and producer of a show called Deep Tech from MIT Technology Review magazine. I'll put a link to that episode on our website at soonishpodcast.org. But the thing about it is... It was a really complex story with multiple layers and a bunch of characters and a lot of science to keep track of. We tried to cram all of that into about 23 minutes, and I was never quite happy with the way it came out. Also, we released that episode on March 11, 2020. And as you might remember, that was the day the World Health Organization declared that the COVID-19 outbreak was a global pandemic, and much of the U.S. went into lockdown. If you're worried about a viral plague with an N of thousands or millions you're probably not in the mood to hear about problems that have an N of 1. So I don't think a lot of people even heard that episode. You don't get many do-overs in life. But for me, the opportunity to talk with Stanley Crook was one of them. So today, I'm going to play parts of that interview for you. And in a few places, I'm going to pause the conversation and jump in and try to make the sciencey parts extra clear. So here we go. Stanley Crook, thank you for joining me on Soonish. It's great to be here, and I'm looking forward to the interview. Can you briefly define what an ASO is for us? Yes, maybe it won't be quite as brief as you'd like, but let's begin with traditional drug discovery. Traditional drug discovery 
uses small molecules to bind to proteins that do the work of the cell. And that's, you know, the source of most of the medications that people take today still. Uh, and it really hasn't evolved dramatically in, in decades. Uh, Anisense technology is absolutely different. Uh, with Anisense, we focus on creating short, chemically modified uh, genetic material designed to interact with the RNAs that produce uh, the proteins that do the work of the body. And then after that, we've now learned uh, how to design ASOs after the uh, binding to RNA to do a wide variety of, of different things. And so the technology is quite versatile. Okay, here's the first pause. Antisense is an extremely cool idea. But if you don't remember all the details about genes and proteins from your high school or college biology class, you might not realize just how cool it is. So here's a refresher. As Stan Crook said, it's proteins that do all the work in our cells. They build things. They move stuff around. They carry important signals inside the cell and between cells. They're essential to everything that happens in our bodies. Proteins can do thousands of different jobs because they all have different three-dimensional shapes. For instance, the most famous proteins in the world right now are probably the spike proteins on the outer shell of the coronavirus. The shapes of those proteins allow them to fit like a key into certain receptor proteins on the surface of human cells. And that's how the virus breaks into our cells and starts replicating. Now, every protein is actually a string of thousands of small molecules called amino acids. And together they fold up into a ball or a lump or a kind of gooey mess with a specific pattern of bumps and grooves and protrusions. The exact shape a protein folds up into is determined by the sequence of amino acids in the chain. So what determines that sequence? Well, that's where DNA and RNA come in. Our DNA hangs out in the nuclei of our cells. And it's basically a twisted ladder where each rung on the ladder is a pair of nucleotide bases. These bases come in four types that biologists abbreviate A, T, C, and G. The A's can only pair up with the T's. And the C's can only pair up with the G's. They kind of click together like magnets. That means the two sides of the DNA ladder are complementary. If you split the ladder down the middle, each side would carry all the genetic information needed to recreate the other side, or to direct the work of the cell. In fact, when a cell needs to make some new proteins, all it has to do is temporarily unzip the DNA down the middle and copy out the sequence information from one half of the ladder into an information carrier molecule called messenger RNA. This RNA leaves the nucleus and floats out into the cell where it becomes the blueprint for building a protein. Now, billions of years ago, the process of evolution here on Earth settled on a coding system where it takes exactly three DNA or RNA bases to specify one amino acid. For example, when the machinery of the cell sees the sequence C, C, T, it translates that into an amino acid called proline. The sequence C, T, T codes for the amino acid leucine, and so on. There are 20 amino acids in all. Now here's where this super science -y digression connects back to rare genetic diseases, like the form of ALS that afflicted Alex and JC. If there's even a single mistake in the gene that specifies a protein, it can totally mess up how the protein folds, and that can keep it from functioning. To take one completely not random example, there's a human protein called FUS that normally helps to repair damaged DNA in the nucleus. 
At one crucial spot in the gene for fuss, Alex and JC's DNA had a T instead of a C. So, what should have been a CCT codon for making a proline amino acid became a CTT codon for leucine. That's called a missense mutation, and it meant that the fuss protein in their cells couldn't fold correctly. So not only could fuss not do its job of helping with DNA repair, but even worse, the fuss molecules clumped up into these horrible little blobs called aggregates that are thought to be toxic for neurons. Now here's where antisense drugs come in, and you're about to see how brilliant they are. A messenger RNA molecule is like one half of the DNA ladder. So if you design a synthetic RNA with the complementary sequence of bases, like a C for every G and a G for every C, it would click in with that messenger RNA and keep it from being translated into a protein. In biology lingo, the original messenger RNA is called the sense molecule, and the complementary drug molecule is called the antisense version. Now, I wrote my first story about antisense technology back in 1997, when I was just a baby science reporter. At that point, Ionis was already eight years old. So this whole idea isn't exactly new, but it took a very long time for people like Stanley Crook to figure out how to make it all work. Even as a student, I felt RNA was going to be a much better place to make drugs. And so when the opportunity appeared to be possible, then I founded Ionis, and I'm fond of telling this story. It's a bit apocryphal, but generally close to the truth. I told venture investors at the time that nothing was known about the technology, that the probability of success was close to zero, too small to measure, and that it would be at least 20 years and $2 billion before I knew. Uh, turned out, you know, maybe 20 years and maybe $2.5 billion for I knew, and probably 25 years before I think uh, what we had accomplished has been become ge more generally accepted. And that, that didn't drive them screaming from the room somehow? <laughs> you know, what I've learned in my, in my life is that big dreams are captivating. And generally, people, whether they're investors or scientists or physicians or business people, would like to do good with their money. Not just make money, but do good. So it was a big dream. And as it happens, I guess I'm not terrible at selling a big dream. Year after year, Crook and his team at Ionis kept chipping away at the problems with antisense. One challenge was designing a backbone molecule that could carry any desired antisense message into the cell. Another challenge was figuring out which parts of the mutant RNA you should block to stop it from making an effective protein. Finally, researchers had to figure out how to actually get their drug molecules into cells and how to make them stick to their RNA targets, all without causing horrible immune reactions. And they had some big wins along the way. In 2013, the FDA approved an antisense drug that blocks the production of LDL cholesterol. It works by binding to the messenger RNA for the protein ApoB, which is the main component of LDL. That's a big deal, given that millions of people suffer from high cholesterol. But it wasn't until 2016 that the story turned in a direction that would be crucial for people with much rarer conditions, like JC's form of ALS. 2016 is when the FDA approved Spinraza. It's an antisense drug from Ionis that treats a muscle-wasting disease called spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA. I'm going to tell you about SMA, and it's going to sound like another science digression, but trust me, it's worth the time. It turns out there's a protein in our motor neurons called SMN, that's crucial for their survival. 
In fact, SMN means survival for motor neurons. Thanks to an accident of evolution, all humans have two copies of the gene that makes SMN. But the second copy of that gene is defective in everyone, and it makes a truncated version of SMN that can't do its job. People with SMA also have a mutation in the first copy, which means their neurons don't have any functional SMN at all. Researchers at Ionis figured out that they could use an antisense drug to repair the messenger RNA from the defective second copy of the gene so that it makes a full-length version of the SMN protein. They called that drug Spinraza, and today it's being used to treat thousands of children and adults with spinal muscular atrophy, which, once again, is a big deal. But what was even cooler, for the purposes of our story, was that the backbone of the Spinraza molecule turned out to be incredibly versatile. It was like an electric drill, where you could insert any type of drill bit, except in this case the bit is the exact sequence of antisense RNA that you need. Was it deliberate or was it more accidental that the Spinraza molecule turned out to be so adaptable? And I'm just curious whether that was um, a happy accident or was it designed that way to some extent? <laughs> it was absolutely designed. That was one of the reasons to do this. And so that the technology is efficient, but it's also portable. We know the rules. It's really very simple. If you know the rules, you can do the work. And if you don't know the rules, you spend your time in the dark hoping. So spinal muscular atrophy or SMA, the disease that Spinraza was developed to treat, is not an ultra rare disease. So can you pivot a little bit and explain what the ultra rare disease landscape looks like. So how long have we known that there are lots of diseases out there where there might be only one or five or 10 people in the whole world with a specific mutation causing their specific problem? You know, that was learned almost as soon as the Human Genome Project started. It, it, it's entirely to be expected. Mutations happen all the time. You have a whole bunch of systems in your body to try to correct them, but it's not a fail-safe. Otherwise, we'd live forever. That was understood. Uh, what was not understood was the scale of the problem. And as more humans were sequenced, it became more and more apparent that there might be a single patient with a mutation, but there are millions of patients with unique mutations. And even within a, a disease that's well-defined, with a name, for example, there are unique mutations in that patient population that can't be served with the medicine that, that typically produce benefit in those patients. And so those two things came together to demonstrate that this was a large and growing patient population that needed an entirely new solution, or, or, or there was no hope that we were going to be able to help them. Was there a specific moment when it first hit you that ASO drugs, similar to Spinraza, might be customizable for these N of one patients. And, and can you kind of go back and tell that story? It was four years ago. I can't remember the precise date, but I can remember the precise emotion. Oh, tell me, what was that emotion? <laughs> well, you know, I was completely aware of the, of the efficiency of the technology. After all, I, I led the invention of it. But it hit me that I, I could actually make a medicine for an individual patient, and I could do it probably cost-effectively enough that uh, I could give it away. Uh, and that was a stunning event for me. You know, I've been in the drug discovery and development business for a lifetime, and it was inconceivable to me that that would ever happen. And so 
I realized that, and then then the question shifted, right? I mean, once you really, once you think you know, you have a possible solution for some of these patients, it becomes a moral question. How can you not do it? Okay, I want to step back here and underline what Stanley Crook is saying. He realized that the science Ionis had been doing to treat diseases affecting thousands or millions of people could be adapted to treat a disease affecting just one person. And beyond that, he realized that there was a moral imperative to do it. But he also knew right away that it would be impossible within the framework of a commercial drug company like Ionis. This is going to sound like a dumb question because it should be obvious to anybody um, with a sort of business background or anybody like you who's been in the business for so long. But, but just for the sake of completeness, can you, can you spell out in excruciating detail why it's not possible, right? Why shouldn't it be possible for Ionis, for example, to make a drug for one person? Well, um, it, that begins with the regulatory requirements for approvals. Um, and I mean, the words sound simple, but they're not. You must prove safety and efficacy. Prove to a very high degree of satisfaction. To do that requires trials in vastly more than one patient. Often, you know, we're doing clinical trials now uh, that involve thousands of patients to gain approval. So if you just think about one patient, there is no way to prove safety and efficacy. What do you compare it to? How would you ever prove that so that you could get approval and then sell the drug? So the first step is it's essentially impossible regulatorily, at least based on existing legislation. The second is it's also essentially impossible from just a tactical, can you do it sort of a process? Because you could think, well, maybe 20 or 30 patients we might be able to work. But unfortunately, most of these mutations are de novo. And so the patients are spread all over the world. And they're varying ages. And they're varying stages of the disease. And a patient who is near death from a disease is much less likely to respond than a patient early in the disease. So tactically, it's impossible. Suppose you were somehow successful, then how do you make money? Uh, <laughs> um, I almost is owned by shareholders. My responsibility as chairman and CEO of Ionis is to make my shareholders money. And so as much as I would have wanted to do it, and I'm sure many of my shareholders would, um, they wouldn't be happy with me if, if I made a bunch of medicines that only cost money. That, that's called losing money. <laughs> wouldn't work. So it, it's, it's, it's quite literally impossible. Meaning it was impossible to do it inside of Ionis. But that didn't mean Crook couldn't try outside of Ionis. And that's where his thoughts took him next. First of all, I had to assure myself that I was going to treat Ionis shareholders properly and uh, you know, find a charitable solution that would not be uh, detrimental to the company. Then we had to assure ourselves that we'd have the upfront information that we needed. We need a ton. These patients have to be fully genetically characterized. They have to be in a tertiary care center where there's a research investigator physician who, who can do all these things. And they have to be characterized clinically. We need to know what organs involved, what, what are their signs, what are their symptoms, what are we going to treat? And then that was when I was introduced to a, an, an organization called the Undiagnosed Disease Network. And it's a consortium of a bunch of major medical centers in, in America 
that saw this problem and said that what they wanted to do was to at least make a diagnosis and tell the patient what was wrong with it. But of course, they all were hitting the same wall, which is it's great to be able to tell a patient or a parent what's wrong, but then in your next breath, you have to say, and there's no treatment and never will be. And just to connect the dots here, you're saying a lot of the undiagnosed diseases that this network was helping to diagnose turn out to be single point mutations. They turn out to be caused by a single nucleotide that's been misprogrammed basically during reproduction. It's a unique mutation. It's a it, not necessarily a single nucleotide mutation. Hmm. That, that's minor, but it's actually fairly important technically. But that's exactly right. And most of these patients, I mean, the stories are horrible. Even with a patient with a disease that's got a name, typically, they're, because they're so rare, no one ever sees them, these patients spend, three, if they live, three, four years just trying to find what's wrong with them. And then, and then at the end of that, to hear there's no hope. And so I uh, developed a collaboration with the UDN. And then the final piece was the FDA. Um, this, there are no policies that contemplated this. There are no, actually, there's no legal basis. <laughs> and, and so this, you know, creates incredible policy issues for the FDA. So I introduced the concept to the senior leaders of the division, the drug division, and they were very rapidly positive and constructive. Then I had everything in place and we started. And we had two investigators that we were helping get ASOs for patients. One was Tim Yu, which is, and he was taking care of a baby with Batten syndrome uh, named Mila. More important to us was Neil Schneider at Columbia, who was taking care of a pair of twins who had a, what's called a FUS mutation, ALS. FUS mutation, very rare, and it produces extremely aggressive uh, ALS, typically from symptom onset to death is you know, a few months. I'll just step in here to note that the twins Stan is talking about were Alex and J.C. Hermstead. And, and so we had the opportunity to help these investigators get medicines. And that gave us the opportunity to work with the FDA. And again, we learned that even before any real guidance is issued, the FDA was willing enough to work to make it possible. Then, of course, it became obvious that it was doable. Now I just needed to fund it. <laughs> Before we talk about funding, I just want to jump in to underscore this point about regulation. Crook makes it sound like it was an easy thing to finesse. It's anything but. The FDA has a very big and important job. It's to make sure that no one gets a drug until it's been shown to be both safe and effective. When Neil Schneider at Columbia heard about J.C. Hermstad's case in 2019, he reached out to her family in Iowa. He told them that he thought he could build on Ionis' work to create an antisense oligonucleotide that would block the production of mutant fuss in her cells. The problem was that the FDA wouldn't let Schneider actually try that treatment on J.C., since it hadn't been tested for toxicity, let alone efficacy. There is a so-called right-to-try law on the books at the federal level that allows access to experimental therapies for patients who are otherwise terminally ill. But that law only applies to therapies that have already completed their phase one clinical trials. That's the phase where manufacturers study a drug's safety and determine the best dosing regimen. JC's parents went into action, and they started a petition to get the FDA to let JC get the new ASO drug anyway. They even persuaded their local member of Congress, 
Iowa Republican Steve King to write a bill to force the FDA to grant an exception just for JC. The bill never came up in the House. But thanks to King, Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley and even Nancy Pelosi joined the campaign to pressure the FDA. And eventually the agency agreed to let JC get the drug as soon as the basic toxicology studies were complete. Crick thinks that was a big step along the way to making N of 1 drugs more available. How do you approach the FDA and get them thinking in a different way about, you know, whether it even makes sense to insist on the same safety standards when a drug isn't meant for millions of people, it's meant for exactly one person? And a desperate person. So, um, so it is very much outside policy and outside the mindset of regulators who, above all, want to protect patients from from potential safety issues. So the first step for me, when this was happened, this happened early uh, 2019, I wrote the senior leadership of the Bureau of Drugs, introduced the idea that I was, that I felt that I could provide these ASOs for free for life in a charitable foundation. I thought they might not believe it, but the response was very rapid and very, very constructive. And then the next step was the FDA announced that it was going to develop guidance for N of 1 patients treatment, which is key step. And they invited comments and we submitted a very lengthy, very specific set of proposals. And, and I'm confident we'll get what we need and whether we'll get everything we asked for, who knows. So that's the regulatory side. But there's still the problem of how to pay for these drugs. JC's family raised a couple hundred thousand dollars on GoFundMe to help cover the toxicology studies. But Stan Crook knew that not every patient who needs an N of 1 treatment will have the kind of community or connections needed to raise that kind of money. There are plenty of examples out there of foundations that exist to shine a spotlight on a particular disease or raise money for research for a particular disease, but I can't think off the top of my head of foundations that are set up specifically to find people with diseases and create free drugs for them. That seems like an unusual, unorthodox, and somewhat risky way to approach the question. Well, I didn't know any other way. Uh, if I can't do it commercially, where do I get the money? And, and, and if I want to give drugs away, then what am I doing? I'm, I'm engaging in a charity. The way I looked at it, I don't know if this is a good explanation, is that we, we benefit today because of all the various patient advocacy groups who have focused on understanding the disease, getting a diagnosis in the hope that treatment would be made available someday. And everybody knows that for that to happen often takes 20, 30 years. And in the meantime, patients progress and die. But armed with the genomic work that was going on, all the work that many natural history studies have been conducted by these uh, patient advocacy groups and the support systems they put together, it was an opportunity for me to take that from where they got it and move the ball across the goal line and actually make somebody better. So the only question I had really um, by the time I started, because I put all the other things in place is, can I afford this? So you started out by putting in some of your own money, I guess, and some close partners also pitched in? Well, the most important collaboration was with the IONIS. <laughs> and IONIS has donated to our cause $2.8 million. And uh, of course, provides a lot of services in kind. We have a formal relationship and we live within that. 
our, our partner in neuroscience, Biogen, um, and I have to thank them tremendously. Michelle Von Stoss, of, of the CEO, has been an incredible supporter and help. Have put in a similar amount. They don't like us to give it precise. And my wife and I have uh, given $3.2 million. And we feel very fortunate to be able to give $3.2 million, but that's a lot of money for us. But that got us started. Uh, and then despite the fact that we haven't attempted to raise money, um, we've been extremely gratified, even in the midst of COVID-19, that many, many other folks have asked to donate. And so I, on top of all that, I think we've gotten three or four more million dollars. So that all gives me confidence that I'm going to be able to raise the money we need. But on the other hand, the demand is much greater than I expected. Much greater. We now have, we're approaching 75 applications. We expect this year to be treating, in addition to the ones that we're treating parallel to in five or six patients. And then next year, I expect we'll be treating 20 or more. Crook says there are some limits on who the N. Lorem Foundation can help. First off, the foundation has to stick with treating diseases affecting the five organ systems where Ionis already has done extensive studies and where they know how to get antisense drugs to their targets. That means the central nervous system, the liver, the kidney, the lungs, and the eye. Another limit is that Enlorem can't treat genetic mutations known as null mutations, where the body just doesn't make a required protein at all. And another limitation is time. Even though the basic antisense technology is already in place, the foundation needs about 10 to 12 months to identify the RNA sequence that'll work best in each case, and then do the required toxicology studies, which are still the slowest and most expensive part of the whole process. If a patient with a rare genetic disease doesn't have at least that long to live, then sadly, Enlorem can't help them. But on the positive side, antisense molecules themselves are really cheap to make, and it only takes a tiny dose of an antisense drug to change the way proteins get made inside cells. Just 10 grams of an antisense RNA drug can be enough to treat a patient for life. Another big step is that the FDA says it'll come out with a more detailed set of guidelines about using N of 1 medicines by the end of the year. Which again is astonishingly rapid given all the policy issues that are at issue. And we're looking forward to that. And, you know, that will give us our clear roadmap and we won't be making a guess anymore about, you know, how the FDA might react to this or that or the other. And, and when you get that roadmap, are you hopeful that there will be waypoints in it that allow you to either speed things up or remove costs or both? Both. And the FDA recognizes all of that has to happen. There is no way that we can get a patient a medicine in a year or less without fundamental uh, shortcuts. And, and the shortcuts would not be possible if we didn't know how these drugs are going to behave. Because you wouldn't be able to convince yourself, I wouldn't be willing to treat a patient unless I did full studies. But with this technology, we know enough and the FDA agrees we know enough that this is possible and still do it with quality, but of course, do it with far, far less investment in preclinical studies and far less investment in, uh, in other areas. It's amazing you've made this much progress this fast. It's amazing this is possible at all. And so this next question is going to sound a little bit like looking a gift horse in the mouth, but 
the more you realize that these rare genetic diseases are actually not so rare, that cumulatively there are millions of such people around the world who could benefit from this kind of treatment, it starts to become sort of a question about distributive justice. And a big part of the problem is happening on the other end of the pipeline, right? There may be kids who, who never get their genome sequenced or who are not treated at a tertiary medical center where there might be a qualified investigator who, who knows that you exist and who knows how to get in touch with you. There are just all sorts of reasons why people might fall by the wayside before you ever get to look at their case. So how do you think about tackling that bigger question of making this treatment equitable and available? Yeah, and I would add to that, we're only in the U.S. And of course, we've gotten applications from outside the U.S. And so at some point, as we get our legs under us, we will want to set up similar systems in Europe and Asia. And then there are all these patients in the undeveloped or poorly developed countries that we can't possibly even fix. What I'm doing, from my perspective, is providing a a justification and a goad <laughs> to the rest of the community to do better, to provide more information, to understand that these patients exist and make sure that's a part of the residency and medical school curriculum and that people walk away. They may not know that single thing about mutations or rare diseases, but they understand they exist so that when they see a patient, they can't explain they make the right decision and move that patient to a tertiary care center where they can be handled. And, you know, then we have a whole set of other societal issues that will come into play here, like, you know, care of the patients long-term and all those things. My position is I'm going to fix what I can. And then that will be a stimulus for the broader community to fix the entire problem. Do you feel that developing these treatments for ultra rare genetic diseases is something that will never be commercializable, or is it just that we haven't solved the problem yet, and so that for now it needs to be addressed by the nonprofit realm? Yeah. Well, I'm a scientist, so I'm not going to say never. Um, but I, I, for me today, it's inconceivable that a commercial model could ever be used for an N of one. There, there are several things that probably are important to add to that. The first is we understand, and we understood when we started in Lorem that we may initially find a mutation that's only been identified in one person or two people, but that may stimulate the community to look harder and they may find patients that, you know, number in hundreds even. Once that happens, then there will be commercial companies like Ionis and others that will jump into that and, and make a business of it. But that's good. That's, that's the way it ought to be. Is there potentially a role at some point for the government to step in to either fund this work or to create incentives so that companies will undertake this work? Uh, no, <laughs> not to that. I, I, I hope not. I think this is a small task. You know, each patient is small. So I think keeping it small is the solution. I'm, what I'm hoping is that there are more small things like and Lorem that pop up. Uh, where I think government is going to play a role is facilitating the charitable model. And, and it appears to me that they're doing it. Now in Europe, uh, you have a very different payer system. Here we have multiple insurers, but in Europe and the rest of the world, all of the payments are handled centrally you know, by the government. And so I think a government will play an, an extremely important role there. And I'm hopeful long-term in the US, 
the government will play a significant role in encouraging insurers uh, to provide support for these patients. And to finish off, what's your long-term dream for the Enlorem Foundation? Do you think you'll continue to expand and expand and expand until you can basically treat every findable person, every person who comes forward with a rare genetic mutation that fits your criteria, you can actually help them? Or is, is you've talked a lot about stimulating and goading other people to get better at thinking about these things. So could you eventually find yourself in a position where the medical establishment knows how to do this stuff? There's no need for you to do it anymore and you can fold up your tent and go home. Well, that'd be nirvana. Uh, I actually don't think that because the medical establishment generally doesn't understand drug discovery. I mean, it's not, they shouldn't. That's not their job. That's my job, right? So I don't think in Lauren will become antiquated. I've only thought 10 years out, so I, I can't tell you what my 40-year vision is. But my hope is that we will be, you know, receiving... 100 to 200 applications a year and being we will run these clinical trials for one year because longer than a year would would be very difficult for the patient and the physician and impossible for us so you know we might be running 150 different clinical trials at the same time the plan i've built entertains all that and lays the groundwork to get it done at norm i have a very tiny dream all i want to do is help one patient one family at a time if i can do that for the patients I could help. I changed their world. Antisense didn't mature quite soon enough to help J.C. Hermstead, but it is advancing fast enough that it could help the next group of people with the same mutation or similar mutations. And the whole story of Antisense looks like a case where biomedical innovation is meeting up with creative philanthropy to solve a problem that affects millions of people, just one at a time. J.C.'s story isn't over. Here's one of JC's family members talking to a TV reporter after her memorial service last May. She, uh, with the, the sacrifice and the contribution she's made to ALS research, hopefully you'll run another story in the future where a cure or there's big developments, hopefully, to help future JC's and Alex's so they don't go through what our family's gone through. Soonish is written and produced by me, Wade Rausch. Our intro theme is by Graham Gordon Ramsey. The outro theme and all the other music in this episode is from Title Card Music and Sound. You can check out a transcript of this episode and links to more resources on our website at soonishpodcast.org. And you can follow the show on Twitter at soonishpodcast. You can learn more about the Enlorem Foundation at enlorem.org. That's N-L-O-R-E-M.org. If you've made it this far into the show and the credits, I know you're a committed listener. So this is the part where I ask you for a couple of small favors. I've been making Soonish for more than four years, so I have a lot of nice reviews, but I need your help freshening them up. When you go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review, it really does help other listeners find the show. Another way to support the show is to go to patreon.com soonish and sign up to send us a few dollars per episode. The money goes toward critical things like music licensing and making sure the show stays free for everyone to hear. If you give $10 per episode, I'll send you a Soonish coffee mug. And at the $25 level, I'll send you a signed copy of 12 Tomorrows, 
the science fiction anthology I edited for the MIT Press. And every Patreon supporter gets early access to new episodes. Get all the details at patreon.com soonish. Soonish is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of independent podcasters making some of the smartest audio stories out there. And this week, I want to make you into a fan of a Hub & Spoke show called Open Source. Open Source is the world's first and longest-running podcast. It's hosted by veteran newsman Christopher Lydon, and it's executive produced by Mary McGrath. And they call the show An American Conversation with Global Attitude. I really loved their recent episode about the film Casablanca. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source in Casablanca, USA, on the Warner Brothers lot in Hollywood, 1941. The hope of every Oscar season is that a movie from somewhere, anywhere, can do what Casablanca did in winning Best Picture in 1942. It was a factory product and war propaganda, too. But the dialogue has poetry with goosebump feeling in it and the staying power of high art. It has more famous lines than Hamlet, delivered by... You can hear Chris Lydon's scintillating interviews with all of the day's leading thinkers and writers at radioopensource.org or on 90.9 WBUR, Thursdays at 9 p.m. And of course, you can find the podcast version wherever you get your podcasts. We're thrilled to have Open Source as part of Hub and & Spoke. And you can check out what the rest of the collective is doing these days at hubspokeaudio.org. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back with a new episode. Finish.